We'll begin reading with verse 28, Luke 19. This, uh, you'll notice this first phrase about going up to Jerusalem. This talk of Jerusalem goes all the way back to chapter 9, uh, when it is said that he set his face toward Jerusalem. So Luke, this, this book of Luke is, is tipped that way so that early on there's this downward slope to Jerusalem. Everything points to this enormous, amazing encounter of Jesus with Jerusalem. And, and here is the, the actual finally awaited uh, entrance into Jerusalem. But we've been uh, talking about this for nine, uh, ten chapters, if you're following chapter-wise in Luke. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the Road As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Lord, bless us with an understanding of your word. And we pray, Lord, for not just intellectual understanding, but a heart that runs out to your word and embraces it and trusts you and a heart that's gripped with the revelation of Jesus in this passage. Hearts that are given up to your will afresh. Hearts that are transformed by the mighty power of Jesus through his spirit. Lord, we come to you as always in dire need. Every day we are in dire need, Lord. Every day we are helpless Every day, as you said, we can do no good apart from you. Teach us, Lord, our desperate weakness, that in you alone do we have strength. In you alone is there grace. Oh, Lord, make us to fix ourselves upon you. 
For we pray it the glory of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You know, it's one thing to uh, miss uh, the gold opportunity, say, in the 70s when it increased some 20 times. And you can look back and think, if I'd only known I would have bought up gold at that point. Or if you had known about Microsoft before it ever got anywhere and invested heavily. It's a whole nother thing to uh, miss an opportunity of rescue. Imagine being caught in a burning building and the fireman breaks in and puts and finds you trapped and and puts you on his shoulder and has you almost out the door when you start struggling and roll off his shoulder, tumble to the ground and then scoot back into the burning building that then falls in upon you. You know, you think, man, that that's a new definition of missed opportunity, you know. You, you were you could have been rescued. You, you didn't have to die. He had you at the door, almost out the door. Have you lost your mind? You know, of course, now can't even ask you that question. You're dead. All right. But uh, that's more of what we have here in Luke 19. Jesus weeping over a city, weeping over Jerusalem. Right on the heels of the Pharisees' rejection, basically, of him, saying, rebuke your disciples for what they're saying. And this being a signal that uh, this represents all of Jerusalem, really, in the Pharisees' comment. It's, it's a down payment, a little beginning of all the rejection that's going to occur. And so, on the heels of that, here's this terrible pronouncement of lamentation and judgment. And... It comes fiercely in the original language of, of language of war and destruction that Jesus pronounces on this city. And we know fell upon this city in 70 A.D. as the Roman armies indeed surrounded and destroyed Jerusalem. But notice he says, because you didn't know the time of your visitation. That's one of the saddest things in all of Scripture. You combine that with Jesus' words earlier in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, as he's also thinking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, killing the messengers of salvation, killing your rescuers. Killing the means by which God would rescue you. And then he says, how often, and and here Jesus really shows himself to be Yahweh here. God Almighty. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. Well, we need to ask, how does this bear on our lives? Because in this passage, Luke is presenting Jesus to us as the king. This passage really bristles with kingship. It has the aroma of royalty all about it. You have to have the background of of Luke giving us the announcement of the angel to Mary that he will be great, Jesus 
will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So he's pronounced a king even before his birth. This is part of Luke's picture to tell people of this one who was born to Mary. This king announced as a king, even by the angel that was telling Mary that she would be with child. And so here in the very climax of his ministry, he comes in this royal way into the city. He'd been walking for miles as he headed for Jerusalem. So it wasn't a, a matter of, of needing you know, a ride, so to speak. It was a symbolic action taken for this last mile to enter the city in this specific way on a cult. And the backdrop is Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? And it's interesting that the phrase in Psalm 118, verse 26, that we read ourselves is changed from blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So he presents him as this royal personage coming in, even fetching the coat has a royalty about it as his rights of lordship supersede the rights of ownership. Tell him the Lord has need of it. You see, this is the king saying the king has need of it and it's given up. And even the royalty of his foreknowledge of where the cult will be and, and what and, and what arrangements will be made, what the what the response will be. He knows all of this because he's being set forth before us as absolute Lord. And even in the cult that is that he sits upon, there's a backdrop of people of kings riding on cults and people putting their garments before uh, the king in Second Kings nine. And so when they set Jesus on the cult, the disciples are really joining with Peter as he acknowledged him to be Messiah and king. And Jesus, by sitting on the cult, is acknowledging and confirming that they are right to regard him as a king. And it's interesting, just a small thing, that he leaves off the palm leaves because that was something that was added in Psalm 118 with the, uh, with the tabernacles. But originally, the Feast of Tabernacles, but originally uh, the lack of palms was an indication as they put their closed before him of a royal entry uh, and an annual reenactment of enthronement from the king. So this is a very specific statement by Luke to say that this one coming is the king. But yet, of course, victorious, humble at the same time. Uh, this, of course, ties in with Luke's whole presentation of of Christ being uh, his kingdom, being one of reaching out to the lowly and to the lost. Even Jesus said of himself, I have nowhere to lay my head. This is not in one sense. I'm the royal you know, Lord of all. But look at my humility. Will you follow me? I have nowhere even to lay my head. And yet a cult coming in like this from a king uh, in Jewish literature indicated already 
an accomplished victory. So there's a wonderful, amazing amalgamation here of the royalty of a conquering king, but yet this element of his humility. And even the Mount of Olives mentioned twice here has a messianic overtone because Zechariah, same book that refers to the cult in Zechariah 14, it says on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, etc. Of course, this speaks in cataclysmic uh, reference and in, in sim- symbolism to indicate the hugeness of Messiah standing on Mount Olive. And Luke is, of course, drawing on that and, and declaring to us, here's the king. He's on Mount Olive. He's coming in the cult that he has fetched himself. This is the royal personage coming into Jerusalem. And the way he builds up the entrance into Jerusalem You know, over the chapters, he's been mentioning it. And in chapter 18 and 19, he just says it over and over again to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. And then verse 29 here, which says Bethphage and Bethany and Olive, that is getting closer and closer and closer. You see, taking us right up to the uh, to Jerusalem itself. So he's building up the drama of what is going to happen when the king comes into his city. The city of the people of God. And he's coming as Messiah and rescuer and deliverer. And all looks pretty good, doesn't it? Blessed is the king who comes. But you notice this is as as Luke sets it forth in verse 37. These are the multitude of his disciples. But then the question arises, what about Jerusalem? What about Jerusalem that represents overall the people of Uh, of God, the people that Messiah was first come for. What about them? And in verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Teacher is used in Luke uh, to refer to those who are outside the circle of his followers who don't really have not really formed an opinion of him yet that are standoffish and doubting and questioning and for them to rebuke the disciples, the, 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 how the word rebuke has been used is that Jesus rebuked demons and he rebuked disease and he rebuked the wind. And now they're saying, rebuke your disciples. So it has the backdrop of rebuking something that opposes the will of God. So now the disciples are put into that category of demons and, and that which would oppose the will of God. So clearly, you see, they, the Pharisees, and then representing Jerusalem, they're not grasping God's purpose here. They're not recognizing the salvation of God that has come to them. They're not seeing their own Messiah that has come into Jerusalem. Though he has talked about drawing near, drawing near, Now this response is regarded really as the response of Jerusalem as a whole. It's kind of an anticipation. It represents what Jerusalem's response will be. And their rejection of him here, Jerusalem already is speaking and rejecting him. It's kind of the first taste of it and guarantee that he will be rejected. And of course, as we see later, 
the people and the leadership joins in this terrible rejection. And you see, that's what launches Christ into this lamentation and this weeping over Jerusalem. But before that, of course, the the statement that even the stones will cry out. Uh, they're they're urging him, don't let them say this. And and here's the incongruency. Uh, he, he's, he's talking about Jesus, the cosmic repercussions of this consummation of God's plan uh, that is shown by this entrance. He says, don't you realize that the very stones will cry out? This is far reaching. This embraces all of heaven and earth. Don't you understand? And here's the, the bitter, terrible irony uh, that Jerusalem should be welcoming their king. But now they're leaving it to rocks to do that. You know, well, maybe, you know. Inanimate objects. I mean, that's the picture here is it's not worth our time. We don't care. In fact, we condemn him. And so here, inanimate uh, creation has to rise up and fill the place where Jerusalem, the people of God, should be. So with that, you see the the full inbreaking of rejection and hatred. Jesus says, would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace. You see, your peace your wholeness, your shalom. Here's the entrance of shalom into Jerusalem. The entrance of full deliverance. Here is Jesus, as it were, coming to embrace them and bring them out of the fire of judgment to deliver them from their own sin and guilt. Truly Messiah. And yet he's regarded as an enemy of God. He's not recognized. And his disciples, they call upon him to rebuke your disciples like you would rebuke demons for opposing the will of God. And in that, he says, you don't know the things that make for shalom, for peace. This gift of God that embraces finally the restoration of all of creation. That's what's represented in Jesus coming on the cult, the full restitution of all things. And yet they would rebuke anyone that would lift one word of praise and honor to him. And so this visitation, as he says in verse 44 because you didn't know the time of your visitation, he speaks of another visitation, doesn't he? You didn't know the time of your visitation of peace. You didn't know that salvation and deliverance and kindness and goodness and graciousness and patience of God had come to you. And even to the point that he would send his son to die for your sake. And because you have not known the time of your visitation, there will be a time of visitation. Time of visitation is certain. It's either going to be in salvation or it's going to be in judgment. So here our Lord pronounces some of the most terrible words in all of Scripture. And they had some of the most terrible fulfillment in 67 through 70 as even parents 
were eating their own children because they were starving to death, being surrounded by the Roman armies. So how do we, what do we do with this? Here is the failure to recognize God's salvation. First, obviously, I must address any of you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to, you know, sometimes it's presented the gospel in a way to say, well, you just think about it and whatever you decide, that's up to you. And uh, if you, you know, just just continue to think about the Lord Jesus and, 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 and let me know what you think. Well, that's true. You've got... Uh, you need to think about it. You need to get on your own and you need to seek God and all those kind of things. But Luke is urging Christ upon us, saying the time of visitation is here. I'm bringing I'm announcing the very one who can save you from your sins, who can save the whole of creation. And you can be a part of that overall salvation. Don't miss the time of your visitation. Don't be one of these inhabitants of Jerusalem where you would have to stand in judgment day and think he had come to me. He had put his arms around me, basically. He had brought someone to speak to me. In fact, several people had spoken to me. I'd read about it. And so I want to urge you, urge you that the message of of Luke that here in the Lord Jesus Christ is the gracious visitation of the God who made you. The God who will one day judge you. The God who keeps you alive. He comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is your visitation, your opportunity for shalom. Your opportunity to know the forgiveness of sins. To know your guilt being taken away in Christ Jesus. To know what it means to be restored to God. To have a conscience that is clean. Not because you're sinless, but because Christ was sinless. Not because you've done perfect works, but Christ did perfect works. And you can be joined to Him and forever associated with Him. And to be brought into God's presence through Him. And that can be your permanent standing forever. Shalom begins with that reconciliation with Him. Standing in the presence of God. Accepted. Becoming one of His beloved. Becoming a child of God and knowing what it is to be loved by God in that intimate way. And then having your life transformed. Becoming a person who more and more knows what it is to lay down your life and to give yourself away to others, to your own, in your own marriage, in your own children, the people closest to you. And to be used in wider and wider ways. To, to be saved from utter loss in the midst of tragedy. To know what it is to have a hope that carries you through the terrible things that will sooner or later happen to each one of us. And to have a hope fixed upon the future love, the, the present love of God that will never and nothing will ever take you away from that love. Shalom, wholeness. It's the only hope for wholeness in this dark, terrible world. And God comes to you through Jesus Christ. 
And in so offering Christ, God's offering you Himself, you see. He's saying, I will be yours through my Son. And I pledge all that I am for your good forever. I urge you, don't miss the day of visitation. Don't turn away from Him. And then, as a kind of side application, just a word to us believers that this, this visitation, this coming with and urging himself upon them, saying, I would have gathered you like a mother hen would her chicks. You, you catch the incredible love, the desire for their good. You see, and that's the tragedy, the desire for good to someone who turns away from it and destroys themselves. But there's... This application I would make for us as well. How many days do we live in which we really don't recognize that, you see, every hour of your life, every day of your life as a believer is the day of his visitation. No, it's the day in which he's committed himself for your good in everything that happens. Whether good or or not so good, whether a tragedy or you think one of the most amazing blessings that happens in your life. But there's no difference. It's not that one day he's absent. He's got his back turned. And a week later he says, oh, yeah, Darwin. Man, where was I thinking? But in every day, it's visitation time. It's blessing time. It's the full goodness and mercy of God pledged to you in everything to give himself to you, conforming you to Christ, drawing you to Christ. Enabling you to manifest and glorify Christ. Enable you to be an instrument of Christ. So in that sense, just to remind you as a believer that we, in lesser ways, not an absolute rejection of his visitation, but in a given day, a given morning, a given week, a given circumstance, we, we just totally don't recognize that my God in this means for this to be to my good. What else does it mean that Romans 8.32, that he will freely give us all things if he would not withhold his son? What else does it mean in Romans 8.28 that he works all things together for good? Every single thing has as its intent in God's part I'm doing you good. I'm doing you good. This is another of those days of visitation of my goodness. That defines your life. Okay? Every day of your life is His commitment to do you good. And even the things that most shock you and disappoint you and turn your life upside down, don't neglect to see. This is, in that lesser sense, another of those days the day of visitation of His goodness to me. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank You that You are a gracious, gracious God. You so love the world that You gave Your only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And Lord, we look to that final day when Jesus will come and restore all things. Create the new, recreate the heavens and the earth and take sin away 
and make us perfect and give us new bodies. And the creation itself groans for that day. We look, Lord, for that final glorious day of visitation where you will forever come and be with us and your presence will fully transform everything. We thank you that our whole life is built upon that final hope. And that in that hope, then every day becomes a little foretaste of that final restoration. All flowing from that initial day of visitation, which you gave your very life for our sake to save us from our sins. Oh, Lord, our lives are defined by your coming in mercy. 2,000 years ago and whenever you will come again, our whole life is buoyed up by the precious coming of Jesus. And oh Lord, every day is your pursuing us, as the psalm says, surely, absolutely, certainly, it is true, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. We praise you. And even in coming to this table, Lord, this most glorious symbol that if you did not spare your son, this, this symbol just proclaims, it shouts to us, I will do, do good to you in every aspect of your life. We thank you, Lord, for these assurances. May we recognize your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.